here in New York City, it's actually really funny. The, the gold standard ground truth pedestrian count data is from, I think, the 70s. And they actually did aerial flyovers. So they had a plane, aerial flyovers is a, a bit of a, a redundancy, but they, they had a plane fly over in the, you know, the middle of Manhattan uh, one day, one nice cloudless day with a camera pointing down. And then they had uh, graduate students with clickers count every dot, every dot that was on the sidewalk was a pedestrian. And, and that's how New York City decided how wide the sidewalk should be in Midtown to this day. Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. Today on the show I'm talking to Jacob Baskin and he is the CTO of a company called Cord and Cord is working to map features that exist on and around curbsides. So initially this might not sound like the most interesting geospatial problem to solve but I think as we get into the interview and you start to think about all the different challenges around doing this in an urban environment I think you'll find it interesting and I think that you'll agree that, that this is a problem worth solving and that it's a difficult challenge. Just before we get into the interview, I would like to remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Hive Mapper. That's Hive as in Beehive Mapper. And this is the company that lets you upload video footage from a variety of different platforms to the cloud and they automatically attempt to turn that video footage, that raw video data, into 3D geospatial layers. Okay, on with the interview. Hi, Jacob. Welcome to the podcast. Now, you are the CTO of a company called Cord, and you're doing something really interesting in the mapping space, in the urban environment. But before we dive into that, can you tell me a little bit about how you, what, what was your journey? How did you get involved in, in, in mapping? Sure. Thanks, Daniel. It's uh, good to talk to you. Um, I'm a computer scientist by training. I've uh, always worked in software my whole career, uh, but I started in online advertising which is super interesting in very different ways than, than what we do at Cord and in very different ways in mapping in general. Uh, you know, dealing with very large data sets, things happening very quickly. Uh, but I've always been interested in transportation in particular, just in my life. And so when I got the opportunity to, you know, work on this, this really interesting problem that I'm excited to get into with you, uh, I thought it, w- it was something I had to jump at, even though I had no real professional experience with mapping before. So... I really had to teach myself when I started at Cord and when we, you know, when we put the company together, uh, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, but that's really my, my experience at Cord and my experience with mapping are one and the same. Sounds good. A good way to get into it. This is the very hands-on approach that we, that we often see with entrepreneurs. Uh, okay, so we mentioned Cord a couple of times now. Can you tell me a little bit about the company? What, what is Cord and what problems are you solving? Sure. Uh, so we're a company that's trying to help uh, cities as well as people who live and work in cities understand the curve. So that space, you know, at the very edge of the road, which is funny as a place because it's not really a place that exists. You're always either on one side or the other. You can never be really right there. Um, But it's for a place that doesn't exist, it's very important uh, because cities love to regulate it. Uh, It's very valuable space because if you want to pick someone up or drop someone off, if you want to drop off a package, if you want to park your car often, uh, this is a place that you use uh, to do those things. And so there's a lot of uh, people contesting the space, a lot of people who want to use it for different purposes. Um, also, you know, people use it for bike lanes, for bus lanes, all of this kind of stuff. And what we found when we looked into this uh, area is that cities 
often don't even have a map of the way that their curve is regulated today. So we start at the very beginning with collecting data and trying to model and understand uh, how the curve gets used um, right now, and then go from there to build tools to help, uh, first of all, people who use the curve understand what the rules are to make sure that they can you know, abide by them and you know, not get uh, parking tickets, and then also help cities figure out how they uh, can change the way they use the curb to make the, the space more productive and more useful for everyone who's there. Okay, so so firstly, this is really interesting, the idea of mapping something that doesn't really exist, that doesn't really have a place. You're either on one side or the other side of it. So that's interesting itself. The other thing is when you said that cities often don't have a map of of the of the, the this area. So so what have they been using? How has it been working until now? So this is one of these interesting things where usually if you want to know what the law is, you know, you, you can, you know, get a book and you read in the book and it says, oh, I can't, you know, uh, you know, walk outside with a chimpanzee on my shoulder on a Thursday or whatever it happens to be. Uh, but on the curb, the law is what the signs say. Uh, so cities put out signs and it says, you know, here's a loading zone, here you can park for two hours, here you have to pay the mirror. And then whatever the signs say, that's what the law is. And if a police officer walks by or a, you know, a meter uh, person walks by, then they'll, you know, look at the signs and use those signs. Um, and cities, you know, make the signs, but they don't have a record of where they put them. They just, if they want to find out how a street's regulated to change it, they will go out there and they'll send usually an intern out there with a clipboard, you know, to mark down where the signs are and how far they are from each other and so forth. So people can take advantage of this. There's actually just a story here in New York City two days ago that uh, some post office employees taped over the uh, hours on the sign so they could set their own hours because they were tired of getting tickets in the middle of the day. Uh, when you don't have a record, this is the kind of thing that can happen. People put up fake signs. People take down signs. They fall down in a rainstorm, and that actually changes the law. So this is uh, not exactly a great state of affairs for anyone. No, and especially when I think about uh, the the likes of autonomous vehicles, or you know, a, a lot of what we do now is sort of driven by the idea that it needs to work for us and the machines. Human readable signs is something that doesn't work really well for machines either. Yeah, it doesn't work well for machines, and and to tell you the truth, it doesn't always work well for humans. There are some great stories of people just getting very confused with parking signs, and it happens all the time, uh, and it's really one of these things where, where, you know, it's kind of, I kind of like it when cities designed for people. But the problem is the curb isn't designed for people right now. It's sort of designed for this, uh, this sort of mishmash of expediency and maximizing, you know, parking ticket revenue and, and all of these different things that, that aren't really for anyone. Okay, so, so we've got this problem. We've got this space that isn't a space, and, and but it's used by a lot of different stakeholders, and it's highly regulated, and it's an interface between vehicle traffic and pedestrian traffic. There's a lot going on there, and it's not really well mapped at the moment, if at all. How are you guys mapping it? What, what's, how are you solving this problem for people? So this is, this is a, a fun thing that's an interesting mix of high-tech and low-tech. So we have an app. Uh, that we call the Cord Surveyor app. And what you do is you install it on your phone and walk down the street and take pictures of the various regulatory devices uh, and other interesting features of the curb 
that you see. So whether this is a parking sign, whether this is a fire hydrant, whether this is a curb cut, like for a driveway or an alleyway or a crosswalk, whatever are the things in that city, that's that's what you capture. And, and what we do is we hire people uh, to walk the streets and use this app uh, to collect the data. And it's an interesting mix of high tech and low tech, because on the one hand, we actually use uh, augmented reality technology. So uh, if you've reality game where you know you move your phone and and stuff appears to be in the real world coming through your phone's camera to do that your phone has to be able to track you very accurately around the real world uh, and it can be much more accurate than gps over short distances like over the space of a single block so we use that to help get very accurate positions for all of these curb assets but on the other hand you know people always ask well you know can't you just you know have a car drive down the street and use machine learning to get everything and we're kind of being a bit scrappier and a, a bit simpler, just having people go and take pictures of the things that are important. Uh, so it's sort of low tech in that respect, but it turns out to work very well. But, but I think too, if you're doing that from a car, if you're collecting that kind of data via machine learning from, from a car, um, you're also seeing things from a vehicle's perspective. And I'm imagining that great chunks of the sidewalk are obstructed for, from, from cars, from vehicles. So you'd be missing a lot of that. Is that not the way it is? Yeah, you miss a ton, and especially in some places, in California in particular, um, and then also in some European cities. Actually, we were uh, just looking at uh, some projects in the UK uh, and in Ireland recently. We noticed there's a lot of stuff that's, that's down at pavement level. It's on the edge of the sidewalk, or it's on uh, the edge of the roadway. And those things, even if they're for vehicles, once somebody's already using that space, uh, the regulators don't care if you can see it while you're driving by because you can't use it anyway. There's a car there, or there's a truck there. So these things can be very difficult to get uh, good imagery on from a, a vehicle. And then the funny thing about uh, AI and machine learning, people will tell you it's a great way to save a lot of human effort. And you know the machines are taking our jobs and so forth. But getting a good model, and especially for these things that vary so much jurisdiction to jurisdiction, not just country to country, but even city to city, sometimes even neighborhood to neighborhood, you know, teaching a computer the stuff that we as humans know intuitively, because after all, these systems are designed for us as humans to understand, uh, can end up taking as much or more effort uh, than sending people out on the street. Yeah, and I really like the like. Firstly, I love the fact that you using um, mobile phones to do this. I think it's there's a great use of the technology. I love the fact that you've got that crowdsourcing approach to it. That I can envision anyway armies of people sort of descending on New York City and mapping everything. Um, in the same way we've seen with, with OpenStreetMap, we've got lots of contributors. But I can definitely see some problems around that, that the ground truthing of of that data. So I can see people collecting signs and saying, yes, that's a sign. What about the transcriptions? And what about um, the fact that those, those stop signs they, or parking signs, for example, they work in pairs. So we see one and then we see another one. And between those two, there's a relationship. How do you record things like that? So that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I mean, first of all, there's the question of just making sure we have good and accurate data. So we make sure that we always send at least two people down every single curve. And if we don't get enough agreement from the two people who go down, we send a third person. You know, you think about crowdsourcing, you think about, well, it would be hundreds of people, get hundreds of people to do this. But when we go to, into a city, it's usually four or five or six people out on the street for a week. And you can do, you know, a ton of space with just that size of crew. 
it's it's really amazing how effective people are and, and you know how how much you can get done with people power so uh, so that means that we can get really good data just by getting you know high coverage and high quality of coverage from these groups of people but then yeah understanding you know not just having a picture of the thing but actually understanding it is is, is really interesting so first for transcribing we're still people powered. This is another interesting thing because there's a ton of off the shelf, you know, optical character recognition, OCR, uh, machine learning models. And we tried throwing them at this problem and they don't do great. We, this is something that we're, we're really exploring and we're really interested to explore in the future. But right now we actually use humans for this as well. We actually send the pictures to mechanical Turk and have people transcribe them and people do a very good job. People do a great job with occlusions, which is something that's very difficult. So if you've got a tree branch in front of part of the sign, you know, maybe there's graffiti over part of the sign or someone put a sticker. These things get vandalized a ton. And people are very good at reading around that and understanding, you know, the meaning in the context of, of what can be a very ambiguous scene. Uh, that is actually really interesting because I would assume that uh, that street signs were almost made like not made for machines, obviously because they're they're human readable. They were designed for us first, but I would have thought they would be so standardized that it would be easy to create a model. This is what a stop sign looks like. This is what a giveaway sign looks like. So that's they're really much less standardized than you'd hope. Um, so traffic control signs, uh, things that control the vehicle when it's moving, are much more standardized, uh, and then. Here in the U.S., there's a thing called MUTCD, the Manual of Uniform Traffic Control Devices, that has you know pictures of all the signs, and it's very, very detailed, like down to the millimeter of how big that arrow has to be and how big the border has to be and all of that stuff. And they do have standardized parking signs, but they only control a tiny percentage of the stuff that you see in cities because every city has their own problems and every city has their own special ways of dealing with this. and Nobody at the national level, or much less the international level, has really determined, you know, a great uh, symbology that can encompass all of these different things, which means that every city ends up building their own. And these are also designed, you know, if you look at stuff like how the text is presented, it's it's often very broken up into zones. You know, you have, we're going to have this top left zone, we're going to have this top right zone, we're going to have this big number in the corner. And... It's, it's designed so that you can get the most important thing right away. But then, but then when we're doing the job that we're doing of trying to understand the rules on the curve in total, we have to also get the least important thing, which can often be very difficult to see. And you can have this huge difference in font size and huge difference in prominence between these different features. And that really confuses off-the-shelf OCR algorithms. I just want to take a step back. That we're, we're collecting the data. We're, we're doing it. We're, we're using crowdsourcing and then we're doing it on, on mobile phones. So I'm thinking that one of the really important things here is the location of things. Where is where, where are these objects relative to the other objects? Because the, the ultimate goal is to map this. How are you solving for the, the urban canyon effect when, when we think about GPS and location? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's, again, why we use this augmented reality technology. So what we do is we have these people, they stand at the corner, and we know exactly where the corner is. You know, we build Actually, this is interesting, too, because another thing that cities don't have is just physically a map of the edge of their pavement uh, for every street is often something that's hard for cities to get. Uh, but we build that map. And so we know when you're standing at a particular corner, corner of uh, 10th Street and 3rd Avenue or whatever it happens to be, you can say, well, here I am at the corner and, and you mark that position, which we know exactly where it is. 
and then your camera and your accelerometer and your gyroscope take over and we can get a very good relative position from that spot. So even in an urban canyon, we don't have to use GPS. We just use your phone sensors to understand how you're moving through space. And doing that, we can get a more accurate position for you uh, even in urban canyons. That, that's really interesting. So I was expecting when you when you say that, so we get this re, the, this accurate positioning, but it would be relative. And then when I get the data out of the system again, I would somehow have to geo-reference that again against the real world. But but that's not what's happening here. Well, I mean, it kind of is, but we're using people power for that too. We just have you we have you geo-referenced by standing on the appropriate corner. Okay, so I'm geo-referencing myself yeah. or the phone at the start at one position, and then from that you can build a, a map relative to that position. Yeah, which is really a very traditional way of doing things. You know, you, you see these yeah, survey markers embedded in the pavement sometimes. I someone A civil engineer friend of mine pointed one out to me. I hadn't noticed one before then, but now I notice them all the time. And when someone's surveying you know, a, a plot of land, they, they go from that known position. So it's really a very, a very old-fashioned way of doing things. Of, you, know, you start from a known position and you go relative to that. But it works. I mean, it's, that's why they've been doing it so long. So I think we've talked about we've talked a little bit about the problem now and how you're solving it and we've picked out a few of those important pieces in the process of solving the problem and some of the some of the challenges you have along the way. Can you talk a little bit about who is who is using this data and what they're using it for? Yeah, so we've really got two main groups of users. On the one hand, we have the cities uh, who really often want to have this map uh, of their curbs and to help understand how their curbs are regulated. Uh, a lot of cities are doing things like uh, demand-responsive pricing, so where the uh, price to park on a given curb uh, goes up or down depending on demand. Um, cities are also doing a lot of pilots of loading zones or, or ride hill pickup and drop-off zones, and they can use this data to set up these pilots uh, much better and much faster than ever before. So that's one big group of users, is we actually sell to the city department of transportation or to other city departments uh, so they can use this data. The other group, are fleets. So uh, one of our customers is uh, the ride hail company Lyft, who are big here in the US. They uh, use our data to help plan better pickup and drop off locations for their users. Um, we also have uh, other fleet companies who use it to make sure that when their cars are parked on the curb, you know, maybe you have one of those uh, free floating car share companies, for instance. Companies like this, when their cars are parked on the curb, they really don't want them to get towed because that can be a major expense for them. So they can use this data to make sure that their cars are parked because uh, by their users in places that they don't get towed or they don't get large uh, fines. I mean, having an accurate map like this and being able to push it out you know, via an, an API or something or deliver it to, to these end users in a digital fashion would definitely take the guesswork out of it for them and, and make a lot more secure business model. And no one would be standing there, well, that sign was there yesterday, but it's not there today kind of thing. I completely understand that side of it. You talked a little bit about charging models. So people, or different cities, I should say, charging for parking based on demand. How do you? How are they doing that without some sort of measure of the, the traffic volume or how often these, these parking spaces are, are taken? So that's often one of the hardest parts is they need to understand uh, what the demand is. So the, the easiest way to get this data, if you have paid parking already, is you look at you know, when people pay the meter and you look at these meter transaction rates and that can work pretty well, but it's never perfect. And the reason why, well, there's two that you can probably guess. One is not everyone feeds the meter. 
uh, especially there are some people who have you know special placards or permits that let them not some people if they're there for only a short amount of time decide they're going to risk it uh, and then the other thing is some people uh, pay too much and they leave before their time is up uh, and then you know the space is available but you don't know it so there's various different ways of of ground truthing uh, that sort of data sometimes it really is people walking around and doing a survey and we we've done that kind of surveying too as well uh, where you're not uh, looking for the assets on the curb, but you're looking for just how many cars are there and, and are they still there if you come by an hour later. So getting that kind of data is something else that people do manually. Sometimes people embed sensors in the pavement so that they can sense this information, you know, as cars drive, you know, you have a little magnetometer in there, the magnetometer spikes and you get a reading. And so now you know kind of what your, your true uh, occupancy is of all your parking spaces that way, which you know, can work, but it's a big upfront expenditure. And we think that that's rarely uh, the most cost-effective way to get that data. Is this is this data that you work with yourselves? Do you do this kind of analysis or do you hand over the map that you've made of the curbside and the assets on the curbside and this kind of analysis is done by a third party? So in this case, perhaps a city. We don't want to tell cities the answer because we know that they have a lot of uh, constraints that we're uh, that we don't fully internalize, you know, and, and it's their curve, and they should be the ones managing it. But but we do handle this data. So in our uh, analytics app, which is the thing that we give cities, it's it's a you know desktop or laptop application uh, that they go in and and they can really understand and do analysis on their curbs. That does include uh, when it's available, and we can get it from anywhere that the cities have it, or we can collect it as well. As I said, the, this this curb occupancy information. Uh, as well as turnovers. So that's how long uh, cars are staying at the curb. So we handle that information as well. Like I, I'm thinking that uh, this curbside data and acid collection in, in this form is going to be important well into the future. But how will things change, do you think? What could you, are there any sort of big changes on the horizon in terms of data collection that would, would help you or in terms of that use case for the data that you're collecting today? So connected vehicles especially on this occupancy side, really have the potential to change the whole game. Uh, where, you know, if you have a fleet of vehicles and they're driving around the city all the time, you can use sort of where they go and where they stop and where they unload and where they park, you know, as a great way to, to sort of get the sort of data in a sample sense. Uh, as well as sometimes that's exactly what you want. You know, there are cities that, that demand that ride hail companies, for instance, turn over all of their uh, trip data uh, to the city authorities, and then they can use that to to do a lot of great analysis uh, and to make your streets a lot better. So there's obvious concerns there around privacy. You know, trip data can be very identifying if the uh, positioning is very is fine grained, uh, and especially if different trips are linked together from the same people. So you have to do some work to make sure that you don't have you know these terrible privacy impacts from getting this kind of data. But if you can do it, then that's really what we think is the most scalable way to really uh, get a handle on these problems. Yeah, and I can see this kind of trip data, obviously, if you can anonymize it in some way. So we're not knowing that this was Dave driving his car on the 6th of April kind of thing. And, and this was the exact route that he took. If we could do that, you could you could start to see what people are actually using these spaces for. And this would be another way of ground truthing. Because instead of assuming that okay we've zoned this for parking people are only parking there you might see a whole bunch of other activities happening in these spaces i think that would be a really interesting data set to look at yeah that's that's something that we really want to get 
Um, and the great thing for us, you know, a lot of times, you know, people are looking at, you know, travel flows to the city. So they really need to know, you know, even if it's not, this is Dave, it's, you know, where are they leaving and where are they going to on the same trip? But what we need to know for the curve is just the arrivals and the departures, and they can be completely separate. You know, we don't have to tie them together, which means that a lot of the de-anonymizing effects of having this trip data go away. So we think that there's really the potential to be very privacy sensitive in the way that, that we handle uh, this data, for, at least from the perspective of the curve. And yeah, to really understand how people are using this. Now, of course, in some, in some cases, most of the users of the curve don't have their own vehicles uh, um, or at least don't have their own uh, motorized vehicles. You know, you have bicycles, pedestrians, uh, people taking transit. So we really want to make sure that we capture these uses as well. Um, and that's it, it, its own kettle of fish. You know, even getting accurate pedestrian counts can be very difficult. But that's something that we absolutely are going to have to start confronting as well. How, how are people solving this problem at the moment? How are people getting these pedestrian counts? Oh, it, it, it can be extremely challenging. I don't think there's a, there's a perfect way. You know, there are some people who are using cell phone location data. You know, so they go to the cell phone company, they pay to see how many people are paying their towers, uh, or they have you install you know, an app that's a free app, but actually it sends all your location data to a location data provider. And you can use this to get, to get some amount of pedestrian accounts. But, but again, ground truthing is very difficult. Here in New York City, it's actually really funny. The, the gold standard ground truth pedestrian account data is from, I think, the 70s. And they actually did aerial flyovers. So they had a plane, aerial flyovers is a, a bit of a, a redundancy. But they, they had a plane fly over you know, you know, the middle of Manhattan uh, one day one nice cloudless day with a camera pointing down. And then they had uh, graduate students with clickers count every dot. Every dot that was on the sidewalk was a pedestrian. And, and that's how New York City decided how wide the sidewalk should be in Midtown to this day. So that's another one of these problems that's really unsolved. And that's not one that, that I think we're going to be confronting just yet. Uh, but it, it's just something that's really interesting is how much harder that is. You know, for vehicle counts, you, you have these tubes, you know, that you, you run the tube. I'm sure you've seen them. You run the tube over the pavement and cars drive over the tubes, and you can use them for bicycles as well. But, but pedestrians, you can't do that. So you, you guys, you, you've built, you built your own app, and so you have experience in this space. And you mentioned just before that some, some apps out there, you install them, and then in the background, they're, they're sending your data, your location data, away somewhere else to be used for something else, a purpose that you've probably not signed up for. Uh, can you see this going away in the future in light of the, the current sort of privacy concerns around spatial data? Uh, I'm not sure that's the, a question for me to answer. I, mean, I told you I worked in online advertising, and I, I'm very happy to escape from that. One of the things I love about Cord is that we really don't deal with any personally identifiable information at all. You know, all of these things that we have uh, that are out there in the world that we take pictures of are our public infrastructure that, in fact, the people who own them want everyone to know about. Uh, and then even if we, you know, are counting cars out there, uh, you know, we make sure that, that nothing personally identifiable leaves the device. But in, in terms of what the right balance is between, you know, privacy and getting this sort of valuable data out to planners uh, and to other people that, to help better understand the world, I, I just think that that's a balance that as a society we have to figure out. And I'm honestly not sure where it's going to come to. I just got one final question before I, before I let you go. And that is when you look out into the future, what is the one thing that you're most excited about in terms of 
um, Cord as a company and, and what you're doing with, with Geospatial? So really the thing that I'm excited about is for the first time building a feedback loop around street usage between the city and the users of the street that can update quickly. And, and what that means is that it means that cities can make policies that benefit their citizens and their residents much more, much more easily than ever before. One of the huge problems around controlling uh, transportation in cities or managing transportation in cities was just that things take so long. You know, it takes a long time to do an experiment uh, to put stuff out because it involves, it involves, you know, often, you know, pouring concrete or at very least, you know, anchoring new signs into the ground, doing all of this kind of stuff. And then even once you do that, you have to have this whole education campaign. So people really understand, you know, what, what it is that you did and make sure to abide uh, by your new rules. And what this means is that transportation can often be a very slow moving space from a public sector perspective. So I think that we really using uh, this new technology and, and bringing all this information into the digital world, we have the opportunity to give cities these amazing new tools for benefiting the public and for, for helping to arbitrate between the different uh, users and the different interests around, around the curb in particular and the street in general. And, you know, I don't even know what they're going to do with this. I don't know what the, the resolutions are going to be. I think it's going to be different in a lot of different cities. Uh, but I think that no matter what, cities are going to be able to build their policies better and to start doing more faster and you know, more inventive things to, to manage this, this huge part of their transportation infrastructure. I think that's a really, really, really great observation there that um, when, when we experiment with cities, it takes a long time. You mentioned we had to pour concrete, put up signs, change the infrastructure. So there's a huge amount of inertia we have to overcome to, to get anything done there. But at the same time, we have this very dynamic thing that we're seeking to regulate, transport. It's changing so fast how we transport ourselves, the different actors involved and where we do it. So scooters, for example, we're moving away from the road onto the footpath and, and we've got all these sort of things that are being mixed together here. So we've got a really fast-paced, highly fluid thing here in transportation and then we have this sort of structural inertia of the, the physical city limits that are difficult to change. And I think ooh, that, that's, a, that's a difficult challenge to, to be presented with, I think. Yeah, very well said. Uh, but, but, you know, we love difficult challenges. I, I always tell my team, you know, if your job weren't hard, then they wouldn't be paying you the big bucks for it. So um, feel the <laughs> same way for companies. Yeah. Hey, I really want to thank you for taking the time to do this interview with me. I, I've really enjoyed it and I really appreciate your time. Before I let you go, can you just, uh, maybe you could tell the listeners where they could go to learn more about you and your company. Uh, sure. You can visit us uh, on the web at cord.com. That's C-O-O-R-D.com. Um, and learn all about what we're doing. Uh, we're happy to have a chat if, you, if you're interested in, in working with our data. Jacob, thanks again. Much appreciated. Thanks, David. All the best. At the start of this podcast episode, I mentioned our sponsor, HiveMapper, and I talked about how it was a platform that lets you upload video footage to the cloud, and they would automatically convert that video footage to geospatial data layers that that you could then run analysis on. So I didn't talk very much about the kinds of analysis you can do there. Once it's converted, you can do things like object detection. You can do things like 
change over time and you can also create view sheds and th that's really great but I think what's really cool about this platform is that I don't need anything else I just need that video footage upload it and then the, the data that I need to do these kinds of analysis is either derived from the data I uploaded or is available for me on the platform and I think that is really really cool. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel and I just want to say that I am so grateful to all the people that are sharing this podcast with their friends. It's really helping to grow the, the community and it's helping to spread the word about geospatial. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. As always, you are more than welcome to reach out to me. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, I would love to hear them. To do so, you'll find some really useful links in the show notes of this episode. Just click the information button on your podcast app and you'll see a few links there. That's it for me. I'll be back again next week with another geospatial story. We'll talk then. Bye.